tell. I did, I did, I did, yeah, I did it right well. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Husky Talk. Our guest today has finished the Iditarod 36 times, has had 16 top 10 finishes, finished the Mount Marathon 11 times. She's an Ironman finisher, a marathon runner, and a cancer survivor. She has retired from mushing and currently works with the search and rescue dogs and reports for KTU Channel 2 News in Alaska. Please welcome to the show, Didi Jonro. Hello, Didi. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show to you guys. Now, what are your names? I'm Olivia. I'm Jackson. Okay. Nice to know my interviewers. <laughs> Before we get going, can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, let's see. I'm 68 years old, and I have a uh, degree from the University of Alaska in Fairbanks in <laughs> Biological Sciences and Renewable Resources. And I worked as a fisheries biologist and a uh, game division biologist for um, several years for the state of Alaska, which is how I ended up starting to mush dogs because I was living in Western Alaska. And uh, what else can I tell you about myself? I mean, you know, my race record, I've raced all over the world, raced in Europe for uh, four years and um, stage races throughout uh, the Alps. And um, I, like I said, currently working on search and rescue uh, with uh, Wilderness Find with my yellow Labrador Phoenix. And I also am um, taking my AKC show Pekingese. And uh, he just uh, was in a show last weekend. Cool. Cool. Tell us a little little bit more about how you got involved with, with sled dogs. When we lived in Bethel which is on the Bering Sea coast. And if you are to uh, Google Kuskokwim 300, that starts in Bethel. And uh, Bethel is not on any road system. It, you can only get there by airplane or boat. And so when we were living out there, we lived there for 15 years. I uh, started running dogs for recreation. I had five and I would travel a little bit to the villages. And as I did that, I decided that I might as well enter the spring races, carnival races, you know, they were small um, village races. And uh, I did, and at that point, women weren't allowed to race with the men. I didn't know that. So I entered with the men and um, then I decided, well, I don't wanna be confrontational uh, culturally, but I'm not going to race with a man in my basket just because I'm a woman. So I entered the Iditarod and the Iditarod was only seven years old at that time. And I got a collection of adult dogs from different people, none of which had ever done long distance mushing, uh, nor at that point had I, but I had traveled a great deal, thousands of miles by snow machine in the winter throughout Western Alaska doing different uh, surveys and um, chasing muskox and being, you know, uh, looking at different uh, wildlife uh, populations. And so then I just thought I should travel across the state of Alaska by dog team. It was very spooky, but uh, we finished that year uh, 24th and it was almost two weeks that it took me to get across there. And I was sure I could do better. So that's why I entered the second time, and then I kind of got addicted. 
You have done the Iditarod 36 times with 32 finishes. Talk to us about how the Iditarod changed over those 36 years. Okay, well, actually, um, some of the stats that are out there, I'm not quite right. So it's 36 times with 33 finishes. Oh. And, um, and, you know, that's fine. But, uh, you know, I at one point thought I would never scratch, but there are times when it's in the best interest either for yourself and or your team to withdraw from that competition that one year so you can be back there another year. And one of those times I broke my hand um, on a tree between my handlebar and a tree. And, you know, I knew that I wouldn't be able to take good care of my dogs with a broken hand. So I withdrew that year. Another time I uh, withdrew was I was going down the Delzell's Gorge and I got hit my head hard and uh, had a, a, a traumatic brain injury is what you would call it. But it wasn't as bad as Allie's years ago, a few years ago. And um, I was uh, not in any condition to take care of my team the rest of the race. So I withdrew from that. Both of those times I had full 16 dog teams. Mm -hmm. So the dogs were doing great, but it goes to show, you know, you have to be a team all doing great at the same time. I did what's changed a lot in that, you know, it's, it's kind of like NASCAR. They don't chase bootleggers anymore. They run a very sophisticated race on a track. Well, I did what is, no longer just traveling across the state of Alaska with a pair of snowshoes to break trail. It is a race with the trail has been at least one time prepared and um, it goes a defined route that has at least once a year been marked, not always marked because a storm comes in and closes it off, but it also because we have learned so much about nutrition and how to take care of our dogs and we've learned how uh, veterinary medicine for them. We've also uh, learned a specific breeding that makes the dogs adapted for the weather and the conditions that they're going to be racing in. So we've learned a great deal about the sport and about the dog itself um, through those 36 years. It's been 50 years now. The idea right just ran its 50th race last year. Mm hmm you finished in second place twice. Talk to us about what you felt being so close to being a champion. The first time I was elated. I had no idea. It took me by surprise that we were in quite that position. And I was thrilled, just thrilled. And I, I thought I could catch first place because I actually saw Jeff King a couple of times as I was coming down the last 20 miles of the race. But, you know, as I talked to the dogs about maybe trying to grab him, you know, trying to put a uh, overdrive on uh, the dogs looked back over their shoulder and was kind of like, uh, excuse me, mom, we've already given you overdrive. And I went, okay, that's great. I'm happy. And, you know, we mushed into town. I was thrilled. Mm -hmm. The second time I wasn't as happy because I said, well, we've already done this. I want first. I'm, I'm not satisfied. I want first. And although Second place any year is a, a wonderful accomplishment. I um, was a little more frustrated with myself for not choosing to maybe shave a little minute here and a minute there because, you know, I actually figured it out and I think I lost that race by one minute per checkpoint. Mm -hmm. I should have been able to be more efficient. The dogs did their job. I should have been a little more efficient. Yeah. Do you have one main rival you are always competing against? Uh, 
No, I, you know, I wouldn't say that because I, I've been in the race too many years to just have one main rival. Um, you know, I started with the original drivers, you know, R Rick Swenson and um, Susan Butcher and uh, Herbie Nyakpuk and Joe Reddington Sr. You know, I started racing in that era. And then as uh, time went on, you know, the new champions in the 90s were Doug Swingley. And um, by then, Susan was almost retired for to start a family. I was racing with Rick Swenson still. He was... Uh, uh, Jeff King had entered the scene as a major competitor at that point. And, um, you know, the CV, Mitch CV was there. And I'd actually started racing against Mitch's father, Dan. And, uh, you know, as the Reddingtons came along, Ryan and um, uh, Ray Reddington, you know, became the third generation of Reddingtons I was racing against. So, you know, I wouldn't say there was a single competitor that I played cat and mouse with my entire career. You are one of the top women in, women in this sport. You have 16 top 10 finishes. What do you contribute your success to? Um, you know, I think my success is uh, perseverance. You, uh, you know, whenever you are not satisfied with your performance, you need to be honest and go back and, and uh, do a reality check of yourself and say, okay, what did I do right? And what did I do wrong? And if you won't see what you did wrong, then you'll never fix it. So you have to see your strengths and then you have to honestly see your weaknesses. And then you can go back and make a plan for how to use your strengths and what conditions to use them in and how to overcome your weaknesses. Now, as years went on, my weaknesses became more physical than they had been in the early years. And <clears throat> I <clears throat> learned how uh, much the dogs could do to assist me because the more I offered them the ability to uh, train to an another skill level, they stepped right up to it. And for instance, I got them to where they were running without necklines, just their tug lines. I got them where I could turn them all loose and they would stay close to the team. And that made it easier for me to get out of tangles. Um, when they're home and I was training, I could turn them loose. They all run back to their houses or they run over to the sled to be hooked up. Things like that, that made it physically easier on me. And um, so, you know, I was able to adjust and I guess, Perseverance, not giving up, and being able to adjust honestly to the different uh, things that happened over the years. Hmm. You've had some. You've had some big challenges in your life. We'd like to talk about talk to you about how you overcame them. First, you were in a car accident and fought back, and still did the Iditarod that year and placed fourth. Can you talk to us about what drove you drove you to that success all, that year? Well, first and foremost, I would say that any um, accomplishments I have are all God-given. You know, uh, my faith was extremely important and God was with me in that car accident. And it was, you know, in the midst of a prayer that I actually heard my husband's voice. And um, my grandmother had been dying alongside of me and she passed away. And so it that was a very uh, spiritual um, time and and. and I learned from that, that 
when nobody else can be with you, God is always with you. And it wasn't just in that car accident at that moment that that's proven to be true. And, and nothing is um, truer than being out on the Iditarod Trail when nobody is around. And, and before we had uh, trackers or cell phones or anything that let people know how you were doing, you really were alone with God. And that, that has been uh, both a very comforting thing and sometimes scary because you've had to realize that um, you, you are too small in this country. You need, it's so big, it's so powerful. You, you need the help of, um, of God. You're not, you're not all powerful. And uh, I've seen that in the storms and, you know, and, um, I, I've just put, put my head down and, um, you know, think about it. You're in this big storm, car accident as well. And you are just absolutely terrified and overwhelmed. Now, the safety of my dogs are dependent on me making good decisions. And I love them and they're depending on me. And what if I just quit? What if I go, okay, I, I, I can't do this, I quit. Well, would that make the storm go away? No. Would that help my dogs? No. Will that make anything better for me at the time? No. no. So quitting was not an option. If I wanted to fall apart and quit, it's going to have to be after I've already taken action and gotten out of the situation I'm in. I mean, even in the car accident, huh? You know, a cell phone fell in my lap and I called for help. I mean, it, I had to take some action and I had to be calm about full headed, knowing I was terrified but still I had to act. And I've thought about that a lot of times. There's a lot of times in life when you just go, I don't want to, I, I'm going to stay in bed. Cancer was another one of those situations. I'm going to crawl under the bed and I don't want to be here and I don't want to do this and I don't want to go in anymore and I don't want any more treatment, but that, what am I going to do? Lay in bed till I die? Mm -hmm. That didn't seem like a good option either. So, you know, it, it seems like once you um, keep moving, you can see the sun on the other side of that black cloud. Mm -hmm. Next, you're a cancer survivor. How has this made your life, I mean, how has this made you a stronger person? Well, one of the um, things about cancer that uh, I never realized, when somebody is actually diagnosed with cancer, most of the time, they don't feel that bad. It's because oh, there's a lump or they're worried about maybe, you know, some little thing that's physically not the same. Mm -hmm. But then you go in and then it's diagnosed. Now you've got to start treatment. Well, so you're feeling pretty good. Now you've been told you've got this really scary thing that you really need to treat and it's really good and it could kill you if you don't. Okay, so you garner it all up and you start going in for your medical treatments. And each one of those treatments is making you feel worse because to treat cancer, they try to take you as close to death's door, killing the cancer cells too, and then they bring you back. And so um, it, I, I thought, Oh, I'm strong. I'll handle this well. And I did it. I, it took me 
as it's supposed to right to the ER. And, you know, my body wasn't able to take any more treatment. Mm -hmm. And then had to begin to come back from it, which my dogs, I ran the race right after my last chemotherapy in 03. And that was a testament to the teamwork with my dogs. They were much stronger than me, but they knew I was weak and they took good care of me. You know, I know that sounds funny, but they didn't, you know, jerk on the lines and they didn't, you know, manhandle me and bump me and stuff. They were, they were careful with me. I chose the older dogs that I'd spent more time with. Well, as you come out of feeling that bad and you regain your health and it took, I was still feeling stronger eight years after treatment. I mean, it took a long time and it taught me patience. It taught me the um, desire to keep trying to get better because I did get better. And it, and it taught me to have extreme empathy for people going through those treatments and um, trying to help them and encourage them and understanding how you know, deflated I felt, I know what I wanted to hear and that's what I want to give forward. And strangely, you know, I ended up 10 years later losing both my father to melanoma and my mother to breast cancer. So I had this experience that helped me be a better caretaker and a better daughter to help them through their, uh, their cancer journeys, which, you know, it was, I mean, God called them home. And I honestly have to say, I guess that must be one of the reasons God let me go through it first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know what it's like to, my mom had breast cancer. So like, it's, it's, I don't know, it's kind of, you know, like that what they're going through is hard. And now, you know, like how to feel empathy for one another. You know, sweetheart, and I got to tell you, it was harder for me to be the caregiver and, and, and the daughter than to be the patient. Yeah, I wanted so badly to take that away from mom and I'll do it, mom, you know, but it isn't that kind of thing. So I, I have a lot of respect for you for any of us that have been family members or have been touched by it. It's it takes a lot to watch someone you love uh, hurt. Most recently, you had a fire on your property. How did you overcome this challenge? That's, that has been one of the hard ones. Uh, not just a fire, a devastating, burned everything we've ever owned. Um, the only thing I was able to save out of here was my dogs. But it showed me what is my priority. As I drove in and ash was falling on our kennel, what did I want to grab my dogs? And what did I get out of here? My dogs and a couple of guns. That was it. I didn't, I couldn't think of anything else. I just knew I had to get the dogs out of here because first of all, we're dead end. We didn't have another way out. And secondly, Ash was already falling and it was too hot for them. You know, they couldn't stay in the truck with that much heat around it. I didn't have a truck that could carry all of them. So I had a trailer, enclosed trailer, and I just tossed more dogs in there and it was just too hot and I needed to move so it taught me the priority of because I remember when I saw everything was gone at that time I still had my mother now she died five weeks later 
And that was the most devastating of all because I realized in the fire, it was material things. Yes, they were all gone, but I had the dogs that could feel pain. I had them out of there. I still had my husband and my, and my mom and it was okay. We could, we could recover Mm -hmm. when mom died. I must admit that was a pretty uh, low time for me. There again, I couldn't stop because if I stopped, I didn't have any place to live. And if I stopped, I didn't have anybody take care of the dogs. And there they were in a friend's, Martin Boozer's kennel. And um, I needed to take care of them. There were 62 of them at the time. So you saved all of your dogs? I did. I did. All my dogs, I had four Labradors at the time, one Pekingese and 62 Huskies. Wow. That's a lot of dogs. That's a lot. lot. You can imagine how many dogs that was to try to load in a hurry. Yeah. And they're heavy dogs too. (laughs) I did not not expect that many dogs. Yeah. Yeah. You've You've won many awards. Sportsmanship, humanitarian, most inspiration, inspirational musher. Does one of those these awards mean more to you than the others? Um, I think the the award that means the very most to me is the um, humanitarian award for the best cared for dog team in any one particular race. I've won it twice in Iditarod. I won it in the Alpi Rod and Cusco Three Hundred. Almost every major race I've ever been in, I've won it at some point in time. And that award is um, voted on it and presented by the veterinarian team. And so to be recognized for what it is and the reason that I'm in the sport, because I most love dogs and want to contribute to their quality of life, um, then to be recognized excellence in that, that's what I'm most proud of. And you know, the thing is, any one year, you can't guarantee you'll win. You can't. You can't even guarantee you'll finish, as it turns out. I thought I could, but you can't. But you can guarantee you'll take the best possible care of your dogs. That's something I can follow through with. And I can do it 12 months a year. And um, I know I can do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As a top female athlete, is there anything you would like young girls that are listening to this know? The best thing to tell them is the sky's the limit. Nobody ever thought I could make a living running sled dogs. Never. And uh, then once I did, nobody thought I could be competitive. And once I was making a living and I was competitive, you know, they kept having ceilings, ceilings on you. And, you know, I I started uh, as a runner later in life, too. I, I started running races to see how my dogs might be feeling. And, um you know, the next thing, you know, I, I was not very good. I mean, it's kind of humbling to be a little short girl running in these, you know, long distance races. And, um, but, I, you know, same deal. I'm just trying to learn from it. Well, I qualified for Boston uh, a few years ago. It was six, I believe it was, or 08. And I ran Boston Marathon as having qualified in my age class. This little girl that was not really an athlete in school, but that just never wanted to give up. I wanted to keep going, keep going, keep going. I wanted to be something that I wasn't necessarily uh, genetically built to be. 
And it was that that heart for wanting it that pushed me. And I actually finished the Boston Marathon an hour earlier than the cutoff time, which I thought I had not made it under. So it, you know, it's if you have a passion, just go for it. And don't let anybody tell you there's any reason you can't do it. Because passion will passion and heart will overcome many, many other obstacles. Mm-hmm. Our final question is the dinner party. You are able to invite f- five Iditarod icons to dinner, living or dead. Who would you invite to your dinner party? Okay, I would invite Martin Boozer, first and foremost. Living or dead, I would invite Herbie Nyakbuk. I would love to have Rick Swenson. I would dearly love to have Susan Butcher. It would be uh, a treasure for me to be able to have Susan. And let's see, of the other drivers that I would most like to have with me, I think I would choose John Baker. He or Pete Kaiser, either one of those two are very special to me because they are champions from rural Alaska that happened within the last decade or so. And um, I have a great deal of respect for how hard it was and how culturally um, accurate it is for them to have come uh, to a championship in a current sport from it has historically been what their uh, ancestors had done. Mm-hmm. Um, just a little fun fact for you. Our therapy dog here is actually named after Martin Busser. Boozer. That's wonderful. And and you picked a good namesake. He's a, he's a wonderful man. He and his wife, Kathy, are fantastic. Um, I knew them while well, I knew Martin my rookie year before he and Kathy ever got married. And then have helped them over the years and their boys are amazing. And now their youngest son is a father and he and Alyssa have a little boy named, um, let me make sure I say it right. Uh, Paladin, Kaladin, Kaladin uh, Boozer. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk, talk with us today, Didi. You're welcome. And thanks you guys for studying about us. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Didi. Special thanks to our guest, Dee Dee Jonro, for being on the, on the show this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please stop by iTunes and leave us a review. It helps with our ratings. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or people you would like to hear on the show, email us at huskytalk1 at gmail.com. If, you, if we hear from you or you leave a review, we will read it on the show. We would like to also give credit to Hobo Jim for our intro song. That I, did our, it, I did our trail song and our outro song. Out, it's called the Reddington Trail. To me, it's Reddington's Run. In my heart, it's Reddington's Run.